Now, I don't know about you, but when I open up the Bible, it can be intimidating sometimes. Passages I don't understand, passages that might not be relatable. But one thing that I love about the Bible, and I believe if you've never read the Bible and you open up um, and start reading, one thing you might be surprised about, and one of the things that I love most about the Bible is how relatable so many of the people uh, that are written about in the Bible or the people that actually wrote the Bible, how relatable they are. And so what I want to do today in the passages that we look at With each one, we're going to see a passage written by Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, but we're going to read them in the order that he wrote them, right? And so they're from the New Testament, and so he wrote different letters to different churches and for different reasons. And one thing, as I was preparing this message that I realized I hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about, is the natural progression of Paul's faith. So we read scripture, it's divinely inspired, but it's written by you know, people that were fully human, right? God inspired them to write those words. But one thing that I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about is as Paul was living his life, going on his missionary journeys, well, naturally, because he's fully human, he was growing through those experiences. And so I want to begin by reading from the book of Romans uh, about 10 or 11 verses that many of you are going to be familiar with, but some of you, you're like, wait a second, that's the guy who wrote most of the New Testament? I thought he'd be a little bit more spiritual, Right? Because you know, again, it can be intimidating. You're like, okay, I don't know if I can get there. But I read this section, you know, and I'm like, I can relate to that. Especially here in the new year when we're motivated to change, but we failed before. So here's Paul, right? And he's speaking to his own spiritual journey. And uh, I love the, the honesty and ultimately the relatability of which he speaks. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Paul says, what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another Doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. He says, but I need something more. He says, for if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. He says, I realize that I don't have what it takes. This is the truth that we established last week. None of us have what it takes to truly change in the way that matters most. Paul says, I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Verse 21, talk about relatability. He says, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. Right? We've been down this road. He said, the moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. So I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. So I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? And he closes the section by saying this. The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. We've all been there, right? Living out the dichotomy of our own inner nature, right? Of trying to, we want to grow in our faith, but yet we continually find ourselves failing. So we need some, some tools, right? Something to put in our hands so we can actually pull it off. But what we established last week is although many, if not all of us, want to change, we have to understand that this idea of self-improvement, it's a fallacy. It's not possible. 
to change in the ways that God say matters most. We can't do it on our own. So I want to run through real quickly three wrong ways to attempt to change. Because here we are, our motivated selves, beginning of the year. We need to know this is going to be the wrong way to change if I'm going down this route. First is new information. We touched on this last week as well. See, if we merely look to gather new information as a means of motivation to change, we end up becoming educated beyond our obedience, right? Like, oh, if I just get that step-by-step plan, if I just get this book, go to that seminar, right? Get connected to that motivational speaker, right? Watch that video, then it will be the catalyst for change, right? It's not going to happen, right? If I sit around reading books on how to exercise, I'm not going to get in shape, I'd be like, man, if anybody asks me how to get in shape, like, I can tell them. Like, I'm, I, can, I can be a physical trainer. I can be a consultant. I can walk around out of shape helping other people get in shape because I've got all the information, right? I want to be a good dad, right? I read books about being a good dad, about being a good husband. But if it stops at information alone, it's not actually going to bring about the change that matters. Second wrong way to change is willpower, right? We're motivated. Here we are. Our level of emotion, motivation, like, this is going to be the year. Willpower helps. But it will eventually run out, right? January 7th comes and willpower has run out, right? And it's inconsistent when we rely on the motivation of emotion to propel us to change. Like, oh man, I'm going to, maybe your normal wake up time 7.30, right? And your goal is like, all right, 5 a.m. I'm getting up 5 a.m. every single day. I'm going to do my thing, right? The change that you want to bring about. Not going to happen, is it? Which leads us to the third wrong way to change. Big goals, Right? We're good at setting big goals, like right? December 31st, January 1, boom, here we go. I'm going to accomplish something that I've never accomplished before, never even come halfway to that point. So we threw out a big goal, and we're, we're excited, we're motivated. Seth Godin, an author, I love the way he frames this perspective. He says, your audacious life goals are fabulous. He says, we're proud of you for having them. <laughs> but, he says, it's possible that those goals are designed to distract you from the thing that's really frightening you. The shift in daily habits that would mean a reinvention of how you see yourself. See, this changes everything. Because we're so focused on behavior when God has in mind something deeper. The way in which he has created us to be in tune with. So 95% of us will fail at our New Year's resolution. That's not like a number I just threw out. Like that's based on research, right? New Year's resolution, end of the year, 95% of people will not have actually lived that out. And the reason why is because we become more focused on activity than identity. We become more focused on what we're doing than who we're becoming. Because we think that we can behave ourselves into a new identity because we think behaviors are the main point. If we just change our behaviors, then it will change who we are, as opposed to understanding that we have to look beyond the behavior and what God is really wanting us to get to and understand that the behaviors are the, or is what will get there. That's not the end in and of itself. So your resolution should not be aimed at achievement, merely achievement, setting those big goals, but instead establishing a new identity. It's not what do I want to do this year, it's who do I want to become. Let me give me a few practical examples. Let's say you're trying to quit smoking, right? It's one of the most popular habits to try to break. And so you're a few days in, somebody decides to offer you a cigarette. How is it that you respond? How you respond uh, reflects your primary motivation. So let's say you're a smoker trying to break that bad habit. Someone offers you a cigarette. There's a big difference between responding with, no thanks, I'm trying to quit, versus responding with, no thanks, I'm not a smoker. Maybe you've smoked cigarettes for 40, 50 years. Technically, you are a smoker. 
But if you aim to change from the inside out, you're focused more on identity than behavior, then what you've declared is, I'm not a smoker. And through the lens of that new identity, the place, the person that you're wanting to get to, determines your response and how you ideally behave. A few more examples. If you want to become a reader, right? You want to start reading books. Your goal should not be to read a book, but to become a reader. (laughs) That's the the lens in which you're looking through. The goal is not to run a marathon, but to become a runner. The goal is not to learn an instrument, but to become a musician. Now, I understand that it breaks down at some point because uh, uh, me personally, uh, there was a time when I took piano lessons because I love music and want to develop a greater appreciation for music. I personally was not created by God to ever be a musician of any instrument whatsoever. And so I understand, right, just to put that out there, that it is very disrespectful to those of you that have been musically gifted and call yourself musicians if I walk around saying, I'm a musician, because I can play, you know, the saints go marching in on the piano, and it's the big moment in my life. It's not, doesn't make me a musician. The point is, how am I going to determine who it is that I'm wanting to become, and that identity, right, that God is shaping within me is going to determine the behaviors. See, you'll then begin to act like the person you already believe yourself to be. And so you're asking the question, what would a runner do today? What would a runner do? Well, a runner runs. What would a reader do? Well, a reader reads books. What does a musician do? A musician plays instruments. The question for 2019 is not what do I want to do, but instead, who do I want to become? Now let's bring it to a narrow focus. Because as we gather here as a church family and we aim for what matters most in God's eyes, it's never about the behavior itself. It's more the focus on the opportunity that we even have to gain a new identity, to experience being a new creation in God. So how do we attach activity, behavior, whatever area it is that you're wanting to change in to God himself? See, our motivation, we have to understand, our motivation for anything that we do should ultimately be a reflection of who we belong to, right? Again, self-improvement is a fallacy. It's not become the best version of yourself. So cling to Christ and let him shape you, form you from the inside out. And so as we live our life, we understand that all of life is an opportunity for gratitude and for worship. There is no activity that we should aim to take part in that is detached, disconnected from being a part of a relationship with God. All of life is an opportunity for gratitude and for worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, the fullness of life. We don't define success and we look back at the ends of our life at achievement. We look back at how God shaped us, how we postured our entire lives, every single area toward lifting him up, expressing our satisfaction in the, in, in the fact that we belong to him and loving that we get to live that out through every single avenue. Now, I read a few different books in preparation for this series. One is, is actually called How to Grow, written by Daryl Dash. And I love how he really puts this in perspective as far as what our actual aim is. Here's what he says. Habits help to shift the focus from the activity to the person of Jesus. He says when we begin a new behavior, it takes a lot of mental energy. Right? We're trying to summon up some motivation right now. He says when we first learn to read the Bible or pray, we have to think about every step we take. Like, oh, yeah, I need to read the Bible. Oh, yeah, I need to pray. He says the focus at first isn't on the word or on God, primarily. He says it's on our methods. He says, when, I love this. He says when our obedience becomes habitual, then we are able to direct our focus past the activities themselves to the one we are pursuing. The power of a spiritual discipline isn't in the discipline itself, after all. 
the disciplines exist to bring us to Jesus and to put us in the path of grace. Isn't that great? Now, some of you that are very disciplined, right, in, in Bible reading and prayer are like, yeah, I get that because when, when I, I don't have to put a whole lot of mental energy into remembering to spend time with God. And so when I practice prayer, when I practice reading my Bible, immediately I understand that I'm meeting with God. I've made space to be with Him. And we touched on that last week as well because, right, those Bible reading plans that I mentioned, it can be, you know, overwhelming. Like, I don't know if I can pull that task off. Like, okay, wow, that's a big shift in my life. But keep in mind... Again, a little repeat from last week. When we decide to sit down and pray or decide decide to sit down and read our Bible, the primary aim is not to get something out of it. Or oftentimes it's important to know to even understand what we're reading. Because even if you don't tangibly think that you got something out of it or you don't even understand it, what you've done, the discipline of making space for God is what matters most. It's time with him and he shapes us in ways we don't even realize. And over time, right, we end up, connecting more with him and his word, and naturally we end up understanding more what he's speaking into our lives. Now, again, I want to remind, you know, the why. The the only reason why we can put forth effort into anything that matters is is only by the grace of God. Like, fortunately, we live in a culture in a day and an age where we have a lot of freedom, right? We sit around making New Year's resolutions and we go after him. You can become the best version of yourself and the world at large will, will aim to do that. We have to stop for a second, like, Wow, like I can become a new person? God wants to work in my life in this way? Let's not overlook that gracious opportunity. And so let's look at the next passage um, from Philippians that Paul also wrote. So this is a few years after he wrote the letter of Philippians. Again, keeping in mind his own personal growth. Now he finds himself in prison, a circumstance you know, that is extreme as far as creating the margin to really reflect on life and, 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 and think about what matters most. And so Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. And then verse 13, notice, he says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Again, we can't do it on our own. Now, I want to clarify something here, especially if you're hearing this scripture for the very first time. It's like, wait a second. You know, works and salvation, like how is that connected? You need to understand that the only reason we can be saved from our sin is by the grace of God alone. There is no, you can't earn yourself into right standing with God. You can't behave yourself into approval of God. It's only by his grace covering us. But there's gonna be evidence of your salvation. And that's where the hard work comes in. And so the big word for this we mentioned last week is sanctification, the process of being made holy, of becoming like Christ. That requires hard work. I understand that I've been saved, and I understand that my salvation is not the end, the fullness of my faith. It's the beginning. Now that I've allowed grace to cover me, I've asked God to come into my heart, now let's get to work. And the work that we do is this disciplined living reflected through the habits that we take part in so that we can cling to Christ and we can be shaped from the inside out and bear the kind of fruit that he wants us to bear. So again, salvation is God's work from start to finish. But then the question to consider after that is what does God's work of salvation look like in practice, right? Is there evidence of, of the fact that I'm walking daily with God? And so this disciplined living is reflected in activities, right, these habits that really become second nature. And we, you know, much of our daily life, you know, is lived out through habits. We do things automatically without even thinking about them, 
right? What time we get up, what we do, the first thing. After we get up, uh, how we brush our teeth, when we brush our teeth, which shoe you tie first. We do a lot of these things, even get in your car, we could go on and on, things that you automatically do. They've become ingrained in you. They've become second nature. And becoming, having our, our first nature become second nature is essential because none of us can rely on our first nature because it's not all that reliable for effective change. Another reminder that we can't grow on our own. It's only God, as Philippians revealed, working within us that we even have the desire to grow or to change. So we can't grow on our own. And again, the point is not on what we are doing, but who we are becoming. So these habits that we're about to talk about pave the way for us to consistently walk with God in every avenue of life. See, without these habits, then we will just find ourselves year after year merely intending to walk closer with God. So let's get consistent. What's the best way to establish consistency? I want to look at two avenues, two essentials today. The first is this. Focus on the beginning and begin with what is easy. Focus on the very beginning of developing this habit and begin specifically with what is easy. See, the goal when trying to change and establish new habits is not to try and create the change you want. Like, all right, next week, you know, I'm going to be a totally new person, right? Never gone to the gym before, but a week from now, I'm going to go seven days a week. I'm going to be a totally new person. Not going to happen. That's the wrong change to focus on. Instead, it's to take small and easy steps toward that change. One of the books that I read in preparation for the series is called Atomic Habits. And I wrote these books, these resources in the sermon notes and the bulletin, if you didn't pick that up. And it was written by James Clear. And he calls this uh, the two-minute rule. I thought this was very helpful, at least to me. He said, when you start a new habit, it should take less than two minutes to do. Right? This is the point where everybody's officially paying attention. Like, oh, two minutes? All right, I can do two minutes, right? And this is, he said, make it easy. That's the, that's the whole point. He said, nearly any habit can be scaled down into a two-minute version. A few examples. Read before bed each night becomes read one page. Right? It's easy to get in the habit, looking at your phone right, right before you go to bed, which, by the way, affects your sleep. That's been you know, proven very clearly. And so some of you want to make that trans- transition. Like, I don't want to look at my phone right when I get in bed. I want to read instead. Right? You've got to overcome that bad habit. And it can be daunting. Like, oh, read before bed. It's too ambiguous. So I'm, read one page. Like, or instantly, like, I can do that. 30 minutes of prayer each day becomes two minutes of prayer. Right? Again, we come into the new year really motivated, like, all right, I want to be super spiritual. Never prayed before, but now I'm going to pray 30 minutes a day every single day. It's not going to happen. Instead, pray two minutes each day. Study for class becomes open my notes, right? Some of the teenagers are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to use that with my parents. I'll get away. Yeah, open, open my notes. And, you know, parents, you're going to see right through that. But you got to start somewhere. That can be overwhelming. It can be daunting. See, oftentimes the, the, the most difficult part is the starting part. Every single day we're faced with just starting out. It's the essence of the two-minute rule. Fold the laundry becomes fold one pair of socks. Right? Easy to, right? We've been there, all of us. Easy to leave the laundry in there. Like, oh, I don't want to fold all the laundry. If somebody comes in and says, hey, can you fold one pair of socks? Like, oh, yeah, I can do that. We know how this goes. Nobody stops to fold one pair of socks because we can't stand. There's a pile in the middle of the floor unfinished. So folding one pair of socks gets us started to fold the laundry. Run three miles becomes tie my running shoes, right? I know, hey, I agree, it sounds ridiculous, but we focus too much on the change that we want. I want to run three miles a day. Not going to happen. I can tie my running shoes every day. I'm going to focus on where it begins. And if you tie your running shoes and you don't go running, you just walk around the house in your running shoes, you look kind of ridiculous, right? People are going to have questions. Well, there you have instant accountability. That's next week's message, by the way. So... 
I can tie my running shoes. It's going to start there. It gets me one step closer. James Clear, he states this. Once you've started doing the right thing, it's much easier to continue doing it. A new habit should not feel like a challenge. That's reassuring. The actions that follow can be challenging, but the first two minutes should be easy. Let's make it easy. See, the point is to master the habit of showing up. (laughs) That's half the battle, just showing up. And so we're disciplining ourselves to show up. I think you'd agree it's better to do less than you hoped than to do nothing at all. Right? Because that's why we give up. Like, oh, I missed a few days. You know, no, it doesn't matter anymore. You got to just throw in the towel. 2020 will be different, right? We push it off. It's better to do less than you hope than to do nothing at all. So again, if you don't currently read the Bible, don't set a goal to read 10 chapters a day. Commit instead to reading the Bible for two minutes a day. That's a big deal. What you're looking to do is to establish consistency. And again, it's, it's better, don't miss it, it's better to read, you know, to a certain degree, it's better to read one chapter a day every day than four a day every now and then, right? Because we're looking to establish the discipline, this daily walking with God. For prayer, don't start out by committing to pray one hour a day. Start with 30 seconds a day. I'm going to, 30 seconds, I'm going to acknowledge that God is in my life. I'm going to spend that time in prayer. So when you continue to show up, what you're doing is you're establishing consistency, which is a necessary foundation for how to change. It's also important to set a regular time, regular place to establish consistency. It's kind of that next step. And so that you associate this specific time of the day with that specific activity. Right, so establish that consistency. It's also important to establish a, a, a place, right? If you're, you, to have a specific place where you read your Bible or pray, then when you go to that place, that's your cue, that's your trigger. This is the place that I've reserved to do one thing, one place, one purpose. is a, is a mantra that, that, that can be helpful and so that you immediately, right, we're training our minds. I'm going to associate this time and this place with this specific activity. Now, one, one other thing that I'll attach with uh, uh, this importance of beginning with what's easy, I hesitate to, to put this out there because I don't do it myself, so it's a little hypocritical, but I thought it was, it was helpful. And again, literally beginning your day, beginning the first thing you know, of the day with what's easy. Here it is. In 2014, the commander of the forces that organized the raid to kill Osama bin Laden addressed graduates at the University of Texas. Commander McRaven said this, if you want to change the world... Start off by making your bed. I know, nothing profound. You're like, really? I want to change the world. I'm going to make my bed. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, again, I know it's hypocritical. You know, I don't currently do this, but every day I get up before my wife, so technically it's on her. She can work that out. (laughs) I was probably too comfortable in saying that because she was in the last service, but uh, she does. She makes the bed very well, by the way, but. This is very interesting. Here's what McRaven went on to say. He said, if you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. Again, begin with what is easy. He says, it will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. He says, making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. Right? We get this. He says, if you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made. He said, and a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. Something so small and subtle, we're like, yeah, is that really going to change the world? It begins, it's the first step toward changing the world. And and what you'll read, the research and psychology says it's called habit stacking. Because when you begin your day with the right thing and establish good habits, they then naturally become connected with the next good habit. 
And so as we step back and think about what is going to be necessary, it's understanding that we have to embrace the mundane. Because we get excited, we're motivated, we're going to change, well, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm actually going to like it. You're probably not going to like it. I'm just speaking from personal experience. It's not always enjoyable to do what is necessary to get to where I want to go. So I have to understand the importance of embracing the mundane. It's going to be boring. But the greatest threat to success, it's not failure, it's boredom itself. Right? We've lived this out, all of us in different areas. And boredom keeps us from building on these small successes. Because every single insignificant moment actually matters when it comes to significant change, which means there are no insignificant moments. They all matter. Small steps matter. Second area that's important. Right? Begin with what is easy, but secondly, change your environment. You've got to change your environment. Make good habits easy to build and bad habits easier to break. Again, think about the person of Paul. He was in prison. So here he is in a situation where he has a ton of margin to reflect on what matters most, to grow in his relationship with God in a way where he can't go anywhere. He can't, he's limited in his distraction opportunity. And so he has the margin to, to, to really focus on how God is shaping him in this moment. Uh, Jennifer Schaffner, who is uh, part of our church family here, does uh, jail ministry on a regular basis, specifically ministering to women. And uh, just recently... Uh, she was with the women, and she'll typically read a devotional out of Jesus Calling. Some of you are familiar with that and have gone through that before. And on this particular day, she read the devotional for that day in advance and said to herself, yeah, I'm not going to share that specific devotional. And here's, she shared part of what it said. And remember, she's going to the jail to read a devotional to these women in jail. And she said the devotional for that day said things like, this is a time of abundance in your life. Your cup runneth over. You are traipsing through lush meadows in the warm sunshine. This is a time of ease and refreshment. Now, Jennifer did what I would have done as well. Like, yeah, we're skipping that day. We're going to just go with a different day, right? I don't, I, I don't traipse through meadows like ever. I don't know if I've traipsed in my life. But she knew this was going to be a disconnect, right? These, these, these poor women, they'd be like, yeah, uh, yeah, not me. And so she read a different day, and she told the women that she was reading a different day. And after she did, one of the women said, hey, go ahead and read Today's, you know, devotional. And so poor Jennifer, you know, she's anxious. And I'm going to read her exact words here. In this moment, she's like, this isn't going to go well. And so after she shared the devotional, she began to read the actual day's devotional. She said, feeling anxious about it. And after she did, she said, a young woman beside me stuck her arm out and pointed to the woman who requested I read it and said very excitedly, this is just for you. The woman agreed, yeah, that really is just for me, and she went on to share how she had been in solitary confinement for almost 30 days, and now that she was back in the regular unit, she really felt like she was living in abundance and her cup was running over. That's amazing perspective, isn't it? Jennifer said, I was blown away and almost in tears, and then she went on to share that she didn't and couldn't have anything in solitary confinement except a Bible. She read it every day. And shared she never would have picked up a Bible if she hadn't been in solitary confinement. She said she came out of there a changed woman that she would never be the same. (laughs) That's unbelievable, isn't it? How did change happen in her life? Well, she had the most extreme environment one could probably have. Now, I hope that none of you have to go to the lengths of solitary confinement in order to have a disciplined Bible reading plan. But what happened is her environment dictated her behavior. And again, it's extreme. But it changed her, right? Again, speaking to the importance of Bible reading as well, something she wouldn't have not, would not have done otherwise. So environment shapes behavior. What you see first when you open up your refrigerator or your pantry will determine probably what you choose to eat. 
Right? If the fruits and vegetables are in the way of all the junk food, like that's just inconvenient and annoying. Right? But it's at the forefront. They're easier to, easier to grab. So maybe over time you develop that habit simply by the way you organize it. I haven't, got, I haven't had a gym membership for, for several years, and I, I knew that I needed to do that. And my instinct was, all right, what's the cheapest one out there? Right? You know, Planet Fitness, Crunch, and I think all of them you know, are, are good in, in their own right. And so I live in Burlington, and I knew that if I went the cheapest route at one that's 10, maybe 15 minutes away, I, I would probably go like twice a month. Like, oh, it's too much time, too much time to get there, you know, spend 20 minutes on the road, not worth it. I'd probably go twice a month just to make it worth my while. And so I knew, right, this is not a knock on the Y, but I was like, I, I got to get a membership at the YMCA because it's two miles from my house. And the YMCA, right, it's probably the best option for families, right? We're not at an age, my wife and I at a stage where, you know, we can take advantage with the kids, but eventually that will be the best plan. But I knew, right, I got to change, I got to make it as easy as possible right? For, for me to actually go. That's the whole point of having a membership is to take, take part in it and actually go. So I had to change, right? My avenue, right? The environment, so to speak, to make it as easy as possible to establish that discipline. Think about your smartphone. One of the greatest distractions, right? From time management and establishing the habits that we want, you know, of our modern day age. So those of us with smartphones, you know that there's different pages on your phone, right? And the apps that you see on your first page are probably the ones that you use the most, you deem to be the most important. And so those of you without smartphones, right, God bless you. You're the most spiritual ones. We hope to be like you one day, and probably the world will probably revert back there one day, and we'll, we all won't complain. But there's different pages, and so uh, the, mail, the mail app that I get, you know, it's constantly adding up throughout the day. So I, had, I shifted that when I went on vacation to the second page. And I got back from vacation, I left it there. Because you, this is what happens with habits. I'm checking my mail without even realizing it. Right, I see that number, right? That red dot that's just so annoying, right? It keeps popping up. Check me, check me, check me. Okay, I'm checking you, yeah. Right? I don't need to do that every time I open up my phone. Uh, my son Levi is about seven months old, and when he was somewhere in between two and three months old, I'm holding him, and uh, I was scrolling through Facebook, right? Something else that we do, because we default to what's easy, right? That's why we need to make what we want to do, you know, the new thing, easy as possible. I found myself scrolling through Facebook, right? That was an app on the front page, and I see him watching me scrolling through Facebook, and in that moment, I was like, yeah, th- we're, not, we're not going down this route, right? I don't, this is not going to become the norm as he, you know, continues to get older, right? And I'm holding him, and so I deleted Facebook from my phone. Now, th- I'm not saying Facebook's a bad thing, but it was bad for me and where it was placed. And so now, the only way that I can get on Facebook is when I'm on my computer, because I didn't, that was, had become a habit where whatever's on that front page, whatever's on my phone, it's a natural default. See, research has shown, this is very interesting, research has shown that disciplined, self-controlled people aren't that different from those who are struggling, who consistently fail. This is, this is so interesting. The biggest difference is that self-controlled people eliminate the cue or the trigger to the bad habit. They're better, in other words, at, at structuring their environments so that they don't have to display heroic willpower or self-control. So we all know people are like, wow, they're so disciplined in their life. I want to be like them. Well, if you ask those people how they get there, they're probably not going to tell you stories, at least based on this research, of how they were in these situations where they just, you know, made an unbelievable decision in a difficult circumstance or environment. They don't have those stories because they never got to a point where they had to. They choose to spend less time in tempting situations. So the people with the most self-control are typically the ones who need to use it the least. It's so interesting. So make sure you know what your cues are, what your triggers are, right? If somebody has an addiction to gambling, right, and they go in the slot machines, people that don't have that addiction to gambling, that sound doesn't do anything. But for many people addicted to gambling, they hear that sound even if it's on TV, it's like, 
It, it cues that it triggers that behavior, and they find themselves doing automatic th- things that they wish they weren't doing. So make sure you understand your cues or your triggers right, that lead to those cravings, that lead to the behaviors you want to change. But again, as we close, understand the motivation behind it all. Know that grace, the grace of God is what carries you. Titus, the book of Titus, also written by Paul, a few years later, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's good news. But notice it says grace, it, grace itself, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's our primary vehicle. It's not willpower, it's not new information, it's not big goals, it's not just try harder, which we all want to try harder. It's the grace of God itself and resting in that so he can change us from the inside out. So don't forget what we're trying to accomplish because habits aren't the point anyway. 1 Timothy 4, 7, also Paul, he says, train yourself for godliness. The only reason why you should change or become better or grow is to become more like Christ. You're training yourself, you're working hard toward godliness. The point is the pursuit of God, posturing our entire lives toward experiencing him. So we establish, don't miss this, we establish disciplines, not because of what we want to achieve, but instead because of who we want to become, someone who looks more like Christ every single day. Don't settle for anything less.